Oh. You right? Yeah. What's going on? Uh, well, um... No, you just didn't didn't realise it was, was going to be you, but that's You know it's going to be me this week? Well, I, no, I just didn't, I didn't actually, just didn't check, so I just, it doesn't matter. I'm just... All right. I'm just... Yeah. Good to be back in the seat. Radio. Let's get this scene Wait, moving. are you, and your are you here next week? We, no, no, we just had the, the week off last week, so... Yeah, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's just, it's good fine. to be back fine. in the... What are we doing this week? ESPN, head in the game. Yes, I'm Jamie Lang, and this is, of course, Head in the Game. It's your crash course to one of the week's major sporting events. And talking of crash courses, this week's subject is the new MotoGP season, which gets underway this weekend in Qatar. Now, we'll get the lowdown from the insiders who know all there is to know about this amazing sport. But first, a man by my side who needs no introduction. Right, let's crack on with this week's podcast. The old ones are the old ones. Hello, everyone. Alex Lowe here. Yes, of course. It's Alex Lowe. Fresh after his week off, rejuvenated, revived. Did you go to a spa? You probably had a facial, didn't you? No, no, this is this is all natural. It was nice to have a little bit of a week off. Yeah. This natural glow is me. I've never really had... I've not really gone in for a massage. No. Tell me, how was uh, Rachel Springer last week? Stringer. Rachel Springer, yes. <laughs> not Rachel Springer. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> she was fab, actually. Oh, yeah. Also, I tell you what, she knows a lot about sport. Mm, so do I. She covered the FA Cup final. Yeah, I know a lot about that, particularly. Uh, Five times Wimbledon. No, not really. Don't mean All right, can you hold your breath it. for two minutes in the kitchen sink? Mm, no, Anyway, uh, with the MotoGP season getting underway this weekend in Qatar, uh, let's speak to someone who knows even more about MotoGP than probably anyone on the planet. It's the aptly named broadcaster Julian Ryder. Julian, are you there? Hello? I am here. Ah, uh, Julian. Hey, Julian, you need to tell me something before we kick things off. Your surname's not Ryder, is it? I'm afraid it's my real name and it's spelt with a Y. I'm going to change my surname to Lightning. Julian, i got some questions for you. Now, they've been testing for a few weeks. So who looked the most impressive during all of testing? Always a difficult question, isn't it? But the answer really, I think, has to be Maverick Vinales. And why is he looking so good? Uh, nice, simple answer to that is he's quickest. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get too technical. Yeah, fair enough. I like that. <laughs> so tell me then, what's going to be the biggest storyline this season? In Motor Grand Prix, the question is, how much will the injuries to both factory Honda riders plus Cal Crutchlow handicap them over the first few races of the year? You do not have a shoulder operation like Mark has had and recover in a couple of months. Ditto the scaphoid operation that Jorge Lorenzo's had. And Cal Crutchlow's ankle was wrecked last October. And he just got walking. What about Mark Marquez? You mentioned him just then. I mean, isn't he the hot favourite? Not with a recently repaired shoulder. Right, OK. But what makes him so good then? He's the quickest. Surely you can be the quickest, but is it because he lacks fear? Is he because he's more determined? What is it? Mark Marquez isn't afraid of anybody. We know that. He's willing to push it further than everybody else more frequently, but he won't be able to do that over the first two, three, maybe more races because of the shoulder. The shoulder is the most complicated joint in the body. Lord knows how many different muscle groups, ligaments, tendons attached to it. Mechanically speaking, you know, the knee is just a hinge, but the shoulder has to move. It's complicated. And recovery from shoulder injury 
is long-term. Remember when Rossi broke his leg all those years ago? I do, I remember that. The February of that year, he'd just given his shoulder a nasty tweak motocrossing. Put a couple of little splits in the rotator cuff or something, stretched the ligament or two. That was still bothering him at the end of the season. He had to have an op. But Julian, what I don't understand, right, is that everyone still thinks Marquez is the favourite. Then I'd get down the bookies. Marquez does specialise in making us all look idiots, of course. When we make sensible predictions based on what vaguely normal people do. This time, I doubt it. And so, in that case, what about uh, Jorge Lorenzo? He's his compatriot in the same team. Do, has he got a chance? Broken scaphoid, repaired a couple of months ago. Takes forever to mend because of its very, very low blood supply, amongst other things. If that's giving you jip, you can't take your weight on the handlebars under braking. It's a common injury for motorcycle racers and one that is deeply feared. Julian, tell me something else, because I'm, I'm pretty excited about Valentino Rossi. Imagine if he claimed his 10th title. What a story that would be, right? It would be. I cannot help but feel he had a real chance to get title number 10 back in 2015. In fact, I'd go as far as say the stars aligned in 2015. And then he went, frankly, crazy in Malaysia accusing Lorenzo of helping Marquez. I was sat in the press conference on the Thursday and Valentino started talking. And I remember laughing and looking at the journalist next to me, a French journal, I could see it clearly. And he laughed as well. But we were both halfway down our notebook page before we realised he was serious. You know, they know, my God, quick, where's the camera crew? Where's that? Where's that? Where's everything? You know, pandemonium so so much for the you know the the, the old uh, stalwarts who are the rookies worth following i have always been a major fan of peko banyaya who's on the pramac ducati when he was signed before last season started when he was in moto 2 ducati were that keen to get hold of him one of the graduates of valentino rossi's academy one in moto 3 one in moto 2 was second fastest at the sepang test a remarkable talent. He won on the Moto3 Mahindra uh, when it had a chocolate transmission. And he managed to win one of the most violent races I've seen in my life at Assen, about a 12-bike brawl. And you ask the team why, well, if you say you've got to change gear at 13,421 revs on that corner every lap, he'd do it. Can I just pick so, you up on something? For the, people like me who don't know much about God. this, and this podcast is for people who don't... You know, who've got a sort of passing interest in something, want to know more. What's a chocolate transmission? The Behindra was a good motorbike, but it kept breaking its gearbox. And is it anything with chocolate? None at all. It's just me attempting to be um, vaguely humorous. Sorry, so, Julian, it, Alex is obsessed with chocolate. <laughs> they, well, I, if you can see me, you know I am as well. Oh, um, okay. A very fragile gearbox. Oh, I see, like a chocolate teapot, that sort of idea. It's exactly like a chocolate oh, I teapot. I see. As much exactly as a chocolate teapot. It's an old expression, yeah. Jamie, that people of a certain age it's too use. old for me, my friends. Yeah, okay, didn't know what uh, teapot well, is. <laughs> uh, Julian... I thought that was cutting-edge youth, my <laughs> Yes. Julian, also tell me, you've spoken about lots of motorcyclists, but you haven't spoken about anyone who's in GB, and there's Kyle Crutchlow. What chance does he have? He's got a kilogram of metal in his ankle. He's got a what, say again? A kilogram of metal in his ankle. Oh, blimey. What does that weigh him down? uh, Exactly. And he's uh, wearing a a boot that's, I think, a size and a half too big on his right foot. And he can't feel the rear brake properly yet. Oh, so not much chance. (laughs) He's still going quickly, but he's not getting 
what he's been saying at the test is he's just riding around in circles. He can't get to work on sorting the motorbike out. So again, like the factory Honda boys, he starts the season very much as walking wounded and with something that will be a handicap, not just for the next race, but for the next few months. Julian, if I'm going to go to one of the MotoGPs, right, which would you say is the most exciting circuit? They've all got something to recommend them. Yeah, but what's the Monaco Grand Prix of the MotoGP world? Well, you're, you're, you're trying to suggest that Formula One's exciting. There. <laughs> um, well, my personal favourites, as a racetrack, Philip Island in Australia, you know, there are some places you go to that in your ignorance you walk to a corner and go, yeah, so what? You know, hammer the brakes on. Turn left 90 degrees, you're not on the side of the bike very long and go. All of a sudden, you're not impressed. Philip Island, where they're on the side of the tyre forever and it's so, so fast. Oh, you are impressed. And the same goes for Mugello in, in Tuscany, the Italian Grand Prix, which, of course, is helped by the fact there are 90,000 screaming Italians in the place, usually. It's just murder to get in and out of. Le Mans, for all its decrepitude and the problems getting your stuff nicked and the officialdom still has something glorious within those crumbling stands. History. And no one belts out an anthem like the uh, Le Mans crowd. You know, I can go on and on to all of them, with the possible exception of Qatar. What's wrong with Qatar? Oh, it's in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you've been, have you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The cost of a gin and tonic. The racetrack's actually fine. What's new about MotoGP this season? There really isn't anything. The rules have been fiddled with. The big changes have happened. There is no major change in team personnel. I think the interesting thing, you touched on it earlier, is the crop of rookies led by Peco Bagnaia, Fabio Quattararo, Miguel Oliveira, an Italian, a Frenchman and a Portuguese. Oh, and Johan Mir, the Spaniard at Suzuki, all of whom absolutely top draw riders what is the most dominant team is it the ducati riders what is it because i like those bikes <laughs> is that just me being a glory supporter probably liking things fast and red and italian which i think is actually a perfectly natural thing to succumb to you would say honda but without marquez they wouldn't have been winning very much in the past few years yamaha is coming back from a fallow period ktm are a bit out of their depth and you suddenly look at, as you said, at Ducati and go, well, if they can't win this year, when could they win? I used to have a Yamaha 50cc motorbike that used to rag around with Julian. A fizzy. Yeah, a little fizzy. That dates you perfectly. <laughs> but also, Tom, if, if you and I are sitting next to each other, we've got some popcorn, we're going to watch the race. I want to watch the Formula One. You want to watch the MotoGP. Why am I going to watch the MotoGP over the Formula One? Probably because I've hit you with something large and solid. Um, I like overtaking. I like some suspense. I like not knowing what's going to happen in my sporting viewing. The great thing about motorcycle racing, my standard line on this, is we can talk about the motorbikes all you like, but the truth is that the man still matters more than the motorcycle. And I think always will in motorcycle racing. And also, you can see a man at work. If you nearly get flicked over the handlebars at 130 miles an hour, the body language tends to be eloquent. No, I, I listen, I agree. I think you persuaded me. So that just leaves the question, when are you going to invite me down to watch it with you? That's all I want to know. 
Oh, I, I don't go anymore. I'm, 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 I'm watching for my settee nowadays. That'll um, do. He'll go around there. I, I've, I've given up airports after God knows how many years of them. Thank you for joining us today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Sam. Goodbye. <laughs> The charismatic Julian Ryder keeping us oh, on great. track. What a great man. Great guy. Uh, right, Alex, you better be up to speed because next, you know why... I can only imagine. It's time for... The History of MotoGP in 60 Seconds. Motorcycle Grand Prix have been held in countries around the world since the 1900s. But in 1949, the Fédération Internationale de Motoclisme was formed and became the first international governing body for motorcycle sport. The first formal world championship was held in 1949, a full year before Formula One began in 1950. The Brits were dominant in the first decade, the Italians hardly got a look in. And the Spaniards were nowhere to be seen. British legends were born, and the likes of Jeff Duke and Mike Halewood are still talked about to this day. It all started to go wrong for the Brits with Italy on an amazing winning run, taking the 500cc championship from 1966 to 72. Thank God for Phil Reed and the legend that was Barry Sheen in the 1970s. Because the Brits never won a 500cc championship again. In 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased in the Premier class. And MotoGP was born, with engines now up to 1,000cc. The 21st century has seen MotoGP dominated by the Italians. And the master, that is Valentino Rossi. The only rider in history to win the World Championship in four different classes. The Spaniards aren't bad either. With Marc Marquez, the current champion. But maybe this is Britain's year. Come on, Carl Crutchlow. Come on, the dog, the honey badger, the most fearless animal on the planet. This is your year, my friend. Your year. Stop Stop that clock. Time now to take a look at your feedback. Yes, and uh, now listen to this one. Jake in Southampton is new to Head in the Game, but he managed to binge listen all seven previous episodes. Goodness me. In one afternoon, he says, Surely this qualifies me for some kind of award. How about Listener of the Week? You could invite me into the studio, put me up in a hotel, take me out to dinner, that kind of thing. <laughs> Got to admire your front, Jake. Uh, OK, how about this from the Women's Rugby Show? Now, you're going to love this. We're absolutely loving this podcast. Oh. Great job to you all. If you ever choose to do a pod on women's rugby, we'd be delighted to offer our insight. We're the only digital programming which champions the women's game. So we know a thing or two, a little emoji. Got the Premier 15's final at the end of April, which may be a good time. Thanks a lot and keep up the Good work. Make a note, Alex. Premier 15's final end of April. Like the sound of that. Yes, let's do that. Definitely. Uh, One here, no name, just location from Ludlow says, following on from your great sporting rivalries episode and the suggestion of great sporting injuries, how about great sporting failures? A show dedicated to those who missed out. I can see that working. I mean, what would we talk about? Uh, Go on, give what one. About, I, I tell you what, what about that uh, goalkeeper who failed to come on the other night for uh, Chelsea when the goalkeeper wouldn't go off? Wait, How about you're, that? Wait, you're speaking about great sporting failures and you picked well, I'd that say, out. I'd say... Out, out of history, I'd say you just, decided to pick that out. I was trying to be topical. <laughs> and finally, leading us nicely on to next week... Arif says he's a UFC superfan and is keen for us to cover the fight night next week at the O2. Ah, I see, Arif. Okay, angling for a spot on the show. That's what he's trying to do. Maybe you could share a hotel room with Jake from Southampton, our listener of the week. Yes, we'll be doing that next week, Arif. You'll be glad to know. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for the feedback as ever. Keep it coming. Visit the Facebook group Head in the Game podcast. Click join. It's very simple. Say something nice and just go on and do it. Do it. ESPN Head in the Game.
Right, Alex, we're going to find out what it's actually like to be in MotoGP, OK, and speak to former rider James Hayden, who is still very much involved in the sport through his media work. Uh, James, are you there? I am indeed. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Hello there. Hi, good James. evening, sir. Hey, listen, <laughs> I have a vision of you just wearing leathers sitting on a motorbike at the moment. Is that right? <laughs> Unfortunately not. No, I'm in my office, so uh, in the civvies today, but uh, a lot of the time I am, I must admit, even now. I've ah, never been able to pull off leathers. I just look, I look like a weird <laughs> Indiana Jones. I can't pull them off either, unless I've got some uh, Swarfiga and someone from the council to help. Because <laughs> <laughs> they get stuck on you, is that Yes, what? that's the joke, Jamie. <laughs> I just explained. Sorry, get ready for Alex Lowe, James. Uh, James, <laughs> listen, you um, are a superstar in this, so we need to find out all we can about the MotoGP. Now, what are the biggest demands of being a MotoGP rider, like physically, psychologically, what is it? Listen, you've got to be incredibly fit. I mean, a lot of people think you just sort of sit on the motorcycle, but, you know, you've got a heart rate you know, between sort of 180 and 200 for most of the time because it's really, really physical. There's a lot of mental stress as well because you're not just muscling a big, powerful bike around that doesn't want to turn. You're also trying to judge distances and people around you. So... It is very, very physical, very demanding. So, you know, a lot of training is, is absolutely necessary. And uh, and also, you've got to be quite tough, basically, as well, because you do fall off, you do hurt yourself, so you've got to ride injured quite a lot of the time sometimes, travelling around here and there. And, you know, it's, it's a fantastic life, but it is a, a very demanding life as well. How many calories do you burn when you're doing a race? Oof, well, there's a question for you, and um, I'm sure the youngsters <laughs> probably know that. But back out, I mean, a lot. I mean, you're talking of 45 minutes, and you know, you're really sort of going for it. But because you're training all the time, you're riding bikes all the time, you, you know, you've, you've got to be fit for the job when you're doing it. It might be sort of hard work, but um, you kind of just get used to. It. I mean, the closest thing to riding a motorbike, if you ever like rode real hard, like a concept, you know, rowing machine or something like that. That's very much what it's like, even though it's, it's a slightly different position and stuff. But that sort of legs, arms, you know, back, that's perfect training for, for riding. Oh, uh, okay, so it's not like the arcade game that I get on occasionally, one of those <laughs> motorbikes. With those big slides that you can do. <laughs> can I just ask you, if it's not too painful a memory, what was the worst crash and injury? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, there was, I had plenty along the way. You know, I broke a lot of things, you know, collarbones, wrists. Um, ankles, pelvis, ribs, fingers, toes, knuckles. I mean, it's, it is sort of par for the course. I mean, it was in qualifying, actually. I was on a, an R7 superbike, and there was a little damp patch, and I, I crossed it. I was, you know, I was on pole, and I crossed it, and it, the bike high-sided me, which is basically when it slides out and then grips and, and throws you over the other side. And the bike landed on my head, and the, the foot peg kind of got stuck in my helmet and it snapped and it, it kind of and it was dancing down but my neck was at a really bad angle I could kind of feel it being sort of slowly broken by the way I was twisting by by the weight and and actually and I came to a stop and it stopped thankfully before um, it did go snap but when the guys picked it off the foot peg had snapped off and so it was like a 20 mil knifed bar and it had danced down my helmet and got stuck on the rubber seal just millimetres. And if I had got another little yard, it would have just popped off straight into my neck. So afterwards, I had like a bit of a neck damage, but I was more like, blimey, that kind of made my blood run cold because I thought, you know, you wouldn't have survived something like that. And it was just a very freaky little accident. James, well, sorry while I vomit quickly. That was <laughs> pretty hectic. How do you think the whole MotoGP has changed since your retirement in 2008? 
the bikes got faster, uh, quicker. They got more horsepower now. You know, they're knocking out nearly 260 brake horsepower now. You know, they're doing 220 miles an hour down the the long straights from the championship. The biggest thing is for the electronics packages have moved on so far now. But that's a, a real big part of it. The electronics, you know, the the slide control, you know, the anti wheelies, yeah. Um, yeah, they're just the, the bikes have changed, and and also just like anything, engineering changes, tire technology changes. You know, everything just gets better and better uh, every year, and um, yeah, they're fantastic things to ride. You know, they're absolute. You know, and they they rev as well now. They rev to like eighteen thousand revs. They're a real animal, and they're obviously they're light as well. So, you know, they absolutely fly. When you say things have changed a lot, and you, you know, those are the sort of technical specifications. Would you mm. say that it's got safer now? It's always going to be a dangerous sport, and unfortunately, you know, there is a dark side to the sport. But you know, all the guys have got airbags in their suits now. You know, helmet technology's come on, leather technology. The tracks themselves have got safer. Um, you know, the amount of runoff that you've got. They've got air fence in a lot of the. You know, if there is still dangerous corners, they have like a, a layered air fencing that that takes the whack. So things have improved in that way. Obviously, the bikes have got quicker, um, but it's always sort of had its edge of danger. But you take it back to the 500s, which MotoGP replaced, you know, they were really difficult things to ride. They didn't really run below 8,000 revs, and you had in between 8 and 12 and a half, that was the zone you had to keep it in. And they were like a trigger. You got it wrong, and they were like, Nyink! and next thing you know, you're just 10 feet up in the air, upside down, going, blimey, I got, you know, it was just a couple of millimetres difference obviously no electronics so they were really quite angry things to ride but also when you got them in the zone and you had it working they were just unbelievable they were really magnificent if you had to pick out one highlight what would that be unfortunately when i raced in the world championship in motor gp and five gps i I was never on a a factory bike and and you can't win in the world championship unless you're connected to to a factory but you know having said that you know i got top tens i got eight so i got some top 10 results as a privateer finishing top privateer behind the factory bikes but for me obviously you know you do this sport to win and um and so for me when i was on my really best factory bikes back in the uk in the british championship which is just a red hot championship so winning some of those races you know i just had some really great races uh, around there i had lots of wins in the british championship so i think probably beating bayless at thruxton bayless went on to be a a three-time world champion, and, and then me, Hodgson and Walker had this terrific dice at Brands Hatch in, in one of the rounds, and all three of us finished within three thousandths of a second, and, uh, you know, I got the win, so um, that, was a, that was a pretty good one as well. What is it that you miss most? Is it the fear? Is it the adrenaline? Is it the whole romance of it? What is it that you miss most? You miss the adrenaline, you miss this, and also there's a kind of a buzz, a gladiatorial sort of thing about racing and competing against other people. No one gets into racing motorbikes like thinking um, they're going to earn money. You get into racing motorbikes because you just love riding motorbikes. And when I retired, I found it incredibly difficult for about three years. It was like I'd I'd lost a leg because it was all I wanted to do from when I was about seven years old. But then you kind of, you know, life moves on, you replace it, you know, I've got three kids now and I've still got, you know, I've got 11 motorbikes in the garage, it's not like I'm short of motorbikes and I still get a good, a good buzz, you know, I'm off to, off next week, BMW launching a new superbike, so I'm off a bike magazine out there to, to test that, so I still get a bit of a fix, but you can never replace that buzz of, of racing, but the lovely thing now is I'm so happy to you know, it, it was part of my life, and you know, I look at them doing it now, and almost like, God, I used to do it like that. And actually, I'm really happy now, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not. 
I know I've got some races and they still I wish they were doing it and they wish whereas you know I think oh, I had a great career I'm out in one piece I'm still at the races talking about it and um and being part of it but you know, you don't. Um, no one gets killed talking behind a microphone. Absolutely, well, hopefully not. <laughs> I mean, it sounds glamorous. Talk us through race day. You want to try and get a good night's sleep because it's very physical, and some of these circuits as well. You know, there's two hundred thousand people camping, and they bring in engines on the back of trailers with just a straight through exhaust that they rev all night long until they explode. So you kind of earplugs is is the first key. Having some earplugs in because even you know if you're in the yeah, I like to stay in the paddock in a motorhome. I just love being part of it and you know being able to talk to my engineers and um, yeah. So that so that's you know a big thing. But then you get up and you kind of you know have your breakfast. You do your morning warm up. You talk to your engineers. Is there any little changes you want to make for for race day? And then generally, I was always pretty calm. It was just when you got you had a little sequence of stuff you did to you know before the race, and it was just really when you were sat on the grid. That was the only time you really kind of felt the nerves when you're waiting on the grid you just sort of focus it's kind of the lull before the storm obviously for most people that's the glamorous bit because you've got loads of beautiful women on the grid but you're kind of just thinking about getting that good start and getting that launch but, and, um, but james that's the bit that i'm interested in right that moment <laughs> when you're on the grid right we're here so if you have Which to talk yeah this bit <laughs> i like i know not the girls alex Lowe. i think <laughs> that straight over my head I, i'm focused focused on the track <laughs> yeah um james that moment when you are on the grid all right and yeah. you're sitting there on your bike you're ready to go what emotion is it are you are you nervous? Are you excited? Yeah, Are you yeah. anxious? What is it? It's almost a mix of all of those. It's funny because you just want to get going. There is nerves. You have to be very strong mentally, especially if maybe you haven't qualified where you want to be. And you, at the end of the day, when you're sitting on the grid, that's the bike you've got. You can't change it anymore. You can't moan about it. you just got to get on with it and you just got to do your best. There is that little butterfly, nervy, you know, because anything can happen. You know, they're a long race. Often it's in really extreme heat or humidity. You might be in Malaysia or Australia or anywhere. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's a world championship. So you have a bit of that as well. So obviously sometimes it can be quite hot. You forget you're sitting on a big, hot engine, basically, in leathers, in the boiling hot sun in a lot of places. And um, as soon as you get going, or even on the warm-up lap, as soon as you let the clutch out and you start your lap, that all kind of disappears again. It's just there's that, just a funny few minutes on the grid where... You know, you kind of, you know, I hope I'm going to be all right. You know, like, I want to do this. You just have this little nervy bit, but you kind of, you just learn to deal with it. You just kind of put it somewhere else in your mind. During the race, you say you sort of let it all go and, and it's, you know, you get on with it and the clutch comes out and, and you forget about all that stuff. But what about when you're overtaking someone? Do you have that sort of, you know, spike of adrenaline? Is it just a sort of sixth sense that tells you this is my moment? Generally, I mean, obviously, you know, if you're if you're racing with someone out on track, you know, and when you're coming through back markers or something, it's a bit easier because they're, you're generally going faster, so it's quite obvious where you can overtake. But when you're really tightly matched with someone, your bikes are tightly matched. So, so over, t- and you're talking about you know tenths of a second, thousands of a second a lap. So, you know, you're you're trying different sort of lines maybe inside to outside to try and get past and you know i was always very strong on the brakes so that was always one of my sort of best areas to pass you're not kind of nervous about it because you've just grown up doing it all the time and also that's one of the real you know it's nothing like pulling off a nice move on someone you're like yeah you know you, you build your confidence and you're and you're going on and I, I loved that 
aspect of racing, that sort of battling with someone. You do need your weights program because you need to make sure you're strong enough. And when you're on these big bikes as well, they really need muscling around. The bike just kind of wants to carry forward. So you're all the time muscling it. You add into the heat, you add into the stress, you add into humidity. And you realize very quickly, generally guys realize it most when they move up a class. And they're like, wow, God, it's not, you know, now I've got to get fit. They might get away with blagging it a bit in the lower classes. But once you get on the big bikes, you know, you can't. And also, it's your job. You want to be best. I had to be on that grid thinking, you know, I was fitter than everyone else. I trained hardest, you know. That was just a really important part of my preparation to make me feel that I can beat anyone. Uh, And all the guys are like that now. And in fact, now they take it you know, a lot further because, you know, back in my day as well on the Sunday night after the race, you know, you'd all go and have a couple of beers and, you know, whereas a lot of these guys don't drink anymore. I'll be doing it during the race. (laughs) Listen, tell me, talking of um, the other riders, which current day riders do you most enjoy watching? Mark Marquez, I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's 26 years old. He's a seven-time world champion already and just phenomenal. What he does on a motorcycle, almost nobody can match he's just breathtaking and you know and he's changed the style of the sport which you'd think is almost impossible in a sport that's kind of slowly evolved over the years is it because of his lack of fear what is it that makes him the best i think he breaks in a slightly different way i think he uses a lot of back brake which a lot of riders don't he's so prepared to have a crash you know he doesn't mind crashing at all you know he used to be the top riders hardly ever crash whereas you know he might crash three times four times in a weekend before the race the way he finds his limit you know it's unbelievable and also what he can save you see him lose the front and nine times out of ten with most people you lose the front you go down yes you can catch it on your knee if you're quick and you force the bar and i've done it and you can do it but he can reliably do it and you know you can see him leave 60 foot you know, off the tuck front, a 60-foot black mark off the front tyre, and he saves it. He's just got a ragged hunger, it's like a speed, like a natural speed that is, is just phenomenal. I've just never seen anything like him. I could watch him all day long in practice, in qualifying. So he's, he's mega, and I I'm, I'm love the fact that, you know, I'm around to, to watch him. The other person you've got to say is Valentino Rossi. He's a worldwide massive star, and, you know, he's an absolute legend and he, he might not be quite as spectacular as Marquez, but, you know, his longevity in the sport, the fact that he still smiles, he still loves it, you know, one of the toughest sports in the world and he's still going strong after 23, 24 Amazing. years. That is a proper sportsman. J- James, getting down to brass tacks, Marquez yeah. and Rossi, roughly what sort of money might they be earning these days? Marquez is based solely from Honda's men would be about 11.5, 12 million. And I think Rossi's is about 10.5, 11 million. So they're pretty closely matched. But actually, by the time they've done that, you know, you can double that or triple that by, you know, if you've got good sponsors and good stuff going on behind the scenes and your prize money and then you all the, the top 10 in MotoGP, you know, they're all going to be earning in there in the millions. Um, but those two are exceptional. And Rossi's going to be worth about... 150 million. You're retired now, but I know you're very much yeah. involved in the sport. This is through your yeah. media connections. Yeah. What, what are you up to exactly? Now I work for uh, Eurosport and ITV, and I cover, I, I'm sort of a, a pundit, a commentator, and a, and a presenter for their BSB shows, their World Superbike shows. Um, and it's lovely to still be, you know, part of the, the sport I love, you know, coming to, to gush about it and, you know, being connected still. So that's, you know, that's really nice. And 
you know, that's been been lovely. You know, since I stepped out of racing, I managed to kind of step into that. That's been a lot of fun. If I'm listening to this podcast and I think, well, I'm a Formula One fan, that's what I'm thinking. Why do you think uh, that MotoGP is better viewing than the Formula One? Because persuade me. Okay, well, the so it's not. I, yeah, I love Formula One. I love bikes. You know, I love all motorsport, but the. Formula One in in recent times, the the, the rules in the cars have got, you know, to, well, take for example, you know, their their aerodynamics. It's made it so hard for for drivers to be really close to other drivers. So you know, apart from a quick segment they try to take, because it just destabilizes cars. So you take it back to the heydays of of Formula One, and the aerodynamics and the downforce were were nothing like that. So the drivers could be much closer for longer, and they could have much better races and tussles. You know, it's still an amazing spectacle for the one, but the rules and the way the cars work now make it very hard for them to be on track, and it's got more like a chess game in the pits to design free space and, and get away. Whereas with MotoGP, what you've got is you've got all these motorcycles that are very, very close. You see the riders. You see them moving about. You see what they're doing. You know, we had a race last year where there was, I think, you know, there was something like... 60 something overtakes you know for the for the lead the top 18 were all within you know a few seconds i think we had 10 different winners last year and so you're seeing something that you're just seeing a really close motorsport and because you know let's face it it's a bit dangerous and you can see the moments and they slide the bikes it's all a bit more obvious you know it's a much you know it's a much more exciting thing to to, to take in in many ways because Formula one looks also so subtle sometimes you almost can't Told the speed, um, but they're both great things. Listen, Formula One's you know never going to you know it is what it is. It's a worldwide phenomenon. But it's funny the amount of people who've stumbled across MotoGP or Superbikes or something and yeah. watched one and then gone, oh my god! I, I can honestly say that you talking about this now makes me want to really investigate. It wants to make the leathers on and start riding up. I yeah. mean, listen, finally, your favourite for this weekend's race? Who is that? It's so. I mean, it's. <laughs> that's that's the question. I mean, it's it's uh, the the Ducatis are always going to be strong then because they're they're really they're really quick. They were going through about two hundred and eighteen miles an hour. Um, so I think that the Ducatis are strong are strong there. You know, Davizioso in the in the passes has gone really really well there. You know, he's won quite a lot there. So I think I'd probably tip one of the one of the Ducatis and. Um, I mean, but you can never count. So it's, it's again, first one of the year. We've got some great rookies coming in. You know, we've got Quattararo. You know, we've got, you know, obviously we've got Crowd Cutter, our man, but he's come back from injury. But Marquez, you can never underestimate um, because he's such a fighter. He really is. But but I think I'd probably just tip one of the Ducatis, actually. Okay. Yeah, do it shows so, so. My money's on Marquez. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If I was betting my house, I'd be betting on Marquez. James, thanks very much, mate. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. But listen, if you boys want to come to a race, right, then, um, you know, absolutely, I'll sort you out. Come to a British Superbike one so you don't have to fly around. Come around to one of the brands or something near London, if you're London-based, and uh, come and have a day and come and enjoy it. I would love that, but we're going to have to roll in. We'll be on the <laughs> same bike, but I'm going to do... I'm going to be sitting, facing you, hugging you with a helmet on. Tom Cruise style. <laughs> Uh, right, well, <laughs> <Thanks. we're>, <laughs> well, I'm sure we can organise something. <laughs> that offer has just been withdrawn. James, thank you very Cheers, much. Bud. Thanks a lot. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Bye. mate. Bye. Alex.
Yes. You know what they've always said about sport, don't you? Sorry, who's they? Everyone, since the like dawn of time. Yes. Shakespeare said, all right, the fans maketh the game. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't. The fans maketh, maketh the, game. the game. Which play was that? And with it, No, and within <laughs> every group of fans is a super fan. Nice. So with us this week, Valentino Rossi super fan, Dan Weber. Dan, hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are yourself? First, I want to know, when did you come across Valentino Rossi? And, and was it clear that he was something special from the start? Well, in many ways, I sort of started supporting him even before I was born. I wasn't born until 97. His first Grand Prix victory was back in uh, in 96. And uh, my dad started supporting him all the way back in 96. So um, I've pretty much been supporting him since the day I was born. And um, if you go back and watch that first ever Grand Prix victory that he secured, it, it's clear that just the way he rode, how flamboyant he was, that it was going to be something special. And turns out that all these years later, that, that yeah, it was. What is it about Rossi that makes him a superstar? What is it? Charisma, dominance, looks, talent, personality, longevity? Which one is it? Probably hard to put your finger on one thing in particular. I mean, the way he's rode throughout his career, being at the age now of 40 and still going, I think, is what makes him special. But when you see the records he's broken and that he's not done it on one manufacturer, he's been here, there and everywhere, he'll be the only person that will ever have won a 125, 250, 500 and MotoGP World Championship. He's a god in Italy and around the world and I think there's so many things that make him as, as special as he is. What would you say is his greatest moments? In terms of his greatest race, there's probably two. There's the Laguna Seca race against Casey Stoner back in, I think it was 08. But for me personally, for just for, for what it meant for him in the team at the time, it was probably the race in 2009 against Catalonia overtaking uh, Jorge Lorenzo's teammate at the time on the final corner. The, uh, it was the young pretender trying to assert his dominance in the team during that season. It sort of showed that he was he still top dog and it was just an amazing moment for no one had ever overtaken or tried to overtake at the last corner of Catalonia and for him to have pulled it off, it was it was an amazing moment. How has he managed to stay at the top of his game for so long? Is he just incredibly fit? He is incredibly fit, but it's his drive to keep going, to keep winning. The drive to be a 10-time world champion, I think many people are starting to doubt whether he is the greatest of all time with the dominance that Mark Marquez has had in the, few, in the last few seasons. But for me, there is no question he will be the greatest of all time, being slightly biased. But if he does win a 10th world title, it shouldn't be questioned at all. He is the greatest of all time. Would you say he's the greatest Italian sportsman of all time? I think when you look what he's achieved and the records that he's held and the longevity of his career, and I think he's definitely up there. And if not, I would think he would stake his claim very strongly. Yeah. I had a little rumour that apparently he relocated to London to escape the constant attention back in Italy. Is that true? I believe it is, yeah. It was back in, I think, around 2003 or four that he moved to London because in Italy he couldn't even go out for a cup of coffee anywhere because he'd just get mobbed. He just felt like he wasn't a normal human being, so uh, he moved to London to try and be normal. You're looking forward to the new season. What should we be looking out for? Lots. It's a, a big shake-up. Jorge Lorenzo going to Honda and quite possibly one of the strongest rider lineups in the history of the championship with Marquez and uh, Lorenzo being on the Repsol Honda. It'd be interesting to see how that team works with two such big names and personalities. The new satellite Yamaha team with uh, Fabio Cotteraro coming up to Moto2 and Frankie Morbidelli coming from um, Mark VDS Honda. One of Valentino's academy riders in Frankie Morbidelli, so it'd be interesting to see how well he goes. 
Danilo Petrucci moving from the Pramac satellite team to the factory Ducati team. He's been going quick in pre-season testing already. So, And whether Yamaha can get back to the top, having only had one win all of last season, they need to stake their claim back at the top. So it's it's going to be a fantastic season and I can't wait for it. But surely all eyes are going to be on Valentino. I think the eyes are all on the rest of the grid outside of Mark Marquez to see can anyone challenge him he's since he's in the top in the premier class in MotoGP he's only lost the championship once so it'll be eyes on everyone else to see who can catch him is there any hint that he's about to stop his current contract goes through this season and then expires at the end of next season he'll be 41 years of age if he feels that he can keep winning consistently and keep getting podium finishes and he feels that he's successful and fast, I see no reason why he wouldn't go on to 42, 43 or even older. But my head says that he will retire uh, at the end of um, 2020, but my heart deep down wants him to keep going and, and who knows, he may well do. Dan Weber, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. Buddy. We really appreciate it. No problem at all. Good luck, Valentino Rossi! Come on then, Alex. Quiz time, brother. Fantastic. Three laps. There can only be one winner. Bring it on. Yes, it's the head in the game quiz. Ready, boys? Yes. Let's do this. First question to Alex. Valentino Rossi has a pre-race ritual of holding his bike and spending a few moments talking to it. Yes, I don't see why that wouldn't be true. That is true, Alex. Well done. Get in. Jamie, British legend Mike the Bike Hailwood's death was foretold by a fortune teller in South Africa who claimed Mike wouldn't die on the track but aged 40 and hit by a lorry. True or false? No, it's got to be false. It's true. Alex, the average MotoGP rider will lose two litres of sweat in a 45-minute race. True or false? Two litres? It's true. What? Jamie, the MotoGP 1000cc bike tops out at 221.5 miles per hour, faster than a Formula One car. True or false? True. It's false. Juan Pablo Montoya set another all-time record during the F1 Italian Grand Prix of 2004 at 231.5 miles per hour, the fastest ever recorded in Formula One. Round two. Peculiar name for a motorcycle or nightclub. Alex, the Flying Merkel. Motorcycle. Yes, it is. Big American bike from the early 1900s. Jamie, the Purple Parrot. Ah, nightclub. That's right. It's a club in Delaware. Alex, Le Stud. Must be a nightclub. Yes, in Montreal. I know it well. (laughs) Jamie, the Nighthawk. Motorcycle. That's right. It's a classic Honda bike. 100% there, boys. Round three, multiple choice. Alex, around corners, the tyre contact with the track on a MotoGP bike is around the size of A, a £5 note, B, an old halfpenny, C, a 50p piece. Uh, C, 50p piece? Correct. Jamie, many riders favour what kind of leather? A, buffalo, B, alligator, C, kangaroo. Ah, uh, kangaroo. Yes. Alex, how much would each tailor-made GP bike be worth on the open market? A, $2 million. B, $10 million. Oh. C, C $50,000. Uh, $10 million? It's $2 million. Oh. Goodness me, it's very, very close. We're just coming around the corner. And finally, Jamie, at the Spanish Grand Prix of 2018, Valentino Rossi completed over 40,000 kilometres racing. This was the equivalent of A, going around the equator of the Earth, B, going one way to the moon, and C, going around the coast of Australia. Oh, going around the uh, equator of the Earth. Is correct! Yes! Jamie wins! Oh, that can't be right. All right! Champagne to you, old chap. Thank you, sir. 
looks like we're out of gas. That's all we've got time for this week. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Please don't forget to subscribe and review and have your say on our Facebook page, Head in the Game Podcast. Join us next week as we slug our way through the UFC Fight Night. Until then, keep your head in the game. ESPN, Head in the Game. Let's we go into that one more time from t- in 2002. Let's go again. <clears throat> in 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased with In 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased. <laughs> yeah, so in 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased in the In 2002, a major rule change meant in 2002, a major rule change meant that the engine size was increased with the Premier class. Um, one more time, sorry. In 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased with the Premier class. And MotoGP was born with engines now up to a hundred... And MotoGP... In 2002, a major change rule... In 2002... Last one. In 2002, a major change rule meant the engine size was increased... In 2000... (laughs) In 2002, a major rule change meant the engine size was increased with the Premier class. And MotoGP was born... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> 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 Got it. Here we go.